is uh, people watching. They love to watch the crazy, ridiculous things that you guys do, in particular. You know what one of the very best places to people watch is? Uh, is an airport. Uh, we, we've been traveling the past two weeks, uh, traveling with some of our pastors and with our leadership overseas, and let me tell you, it was wild. Uh, it's, like, it's like watching the Discovery Channel, you know, some kind of documentary on like the wildlife of the rainforest or something. Um, the way that people revert to their absolute worst state is terrible, and sometimes it's scary, but it's mostly wonderful, and I love it. I love it. I love watching people. I love watching people in their, their natural element. Uh, I saw a family with two sets of triplets. Yeah. It was just like six little copy-and-pasted situations just like running all around the baggage counter, you know? And the parents looked like they haven't slept in about, you know, six years. It, it was uh, like I hated it for them, but I loved it for me, you know? Uh, I saw a man put socks on the outside of his Crocs. So it's like, like foot, Crocs, socks, you know? Uh, I watched some flight attendants uh, playing an actual game of tag, like gr- grown people playing tag. Um, and I almost joined in because they were, having a, they were having a great time, to be honest. You know, it looked fun. Uh, on a recent trip, I sat down next to this guy on the plane, uh, and he had, he had his laptop out. He was working on some very impressive spreadsheets. I'm kind of a spreadsheet guy, and this one had, like, color coding and stuff. It's very impressive. So he was working on his spreadsheet, and he had one iPad up over here, and he had an, another iPad down here. Then he had one phone with Pokemon Go on it, and then he had another phone that he kept pulling out of his bag, and I'm 100% convinced that he was a spy. Uh, one, 100% convinced. Uh, th- there was a few, a few years ago, I was flying from London to DFW, and uh, something happened. It was like this big like mix-up. Well, let me, I'll get to that in a second. I was sitting in the terminal, and I, I was just like doing my people watching thing, just looking at everyone, trying to figure out, okay, you know, what's everyone's story here? And there's this man, and he was sitting next to me, and he was FaceTiming with his family back home, but he wasn't FaceTiming, to, and this again, in London. He wasn't FaceTiming to America to say, you know, oh, I miss you, I love you so much. He was FaceTiming to tell them exactly how to load the dishwasher, in particular. Like, he, he really didn't want, a, like, certain mugs on the bottom, right? It was like a whole thing. That was the the whole point of the phone call was to tell his family how to load the dishwasher properly. So I get on my flight, uh, something happens with my seat, and I don't remember exactly like what, except that I had paid for an economy class ticket, and somehow I got put in first class instead. Um, you know, it was like a God thing, we'll say. And uh, it, it, it was incredible. So the abridged version of the story is I end up bumped up to first class on an economy price tag. I get like all nestled into the little cubby that they have you in you know, which was wild for me. And the dishwasher man comes up and he says, listen, I am so sorry to bother you, but my daughter will be so mad at me if I don't get an autograph. And so I had a choice here. Like, do I tell him, like, there's not a chance in the world that I am who he thinks I am. So I signed the autograph and said... Just like a scribble, I figure like, you know, whatever this is, like the daughter won't know, right? So then I lay back down in my little cubby, you know, it's like two minutes later, the guy comes back over and he's like, listen, I totally forgot, can we get a picture together? (laughs) Yes, let's take a picture together. So, so we took a picture together, and to this day, like sometimes I'll just sit there and just like think about the look on that disappointed daughter's face. When the dad says, you'll never believe who I ran into on my flight, and he pulls up a photo of me, you know? I, I really do love people watching, though. People watching is, it, it's, 
It's so great because I love to kind of make up stories about who people are, even though I don't know them. I like to imagine like where they're coming from or hypothesize like where, where are they going to next. Um, you know, I love to try to guess if that, if like, is that his girlfriend or his mom? You know, I like, I like to guess that. Um, I, like, I like to try to decide like what people's occupations are. I love to guess what kind of accent they're going to have when they walk past me, and I'm 100% wrong every time. I think someone's from, like, Lithuania, and it's, you know, not ever. It's Australia or something else. So I I love to guess things about people. Um, People watching gives us little snapshots and portraits into someone's life. It's like just that one little moment can tell us so much about what they do and don't want you to know about them. Sometimes... I'm, this is now the Jesus transition. Sometimes I like to imagine, like, Jesus' disciples were excellent people watchers. Or more specifically, they were excellent Jesus watchers, right? They walked alongside him. They lived with him. They learned from him. But they're always watching him in particular. They each had their own perspective on who exactly Jesus was. They all caught on to different aspects of Jesus' personality. And they each had, like, their own side of the same story that they were telling. We get such a full picture of Jesus' life here. The whole picture of like his earthly ministry because his disciples were excellent and perceptive people watchers. And each of the disciples all wanted to communicate a specific aspect about the Jesus that they watched. I love that we're going through the life of Christ together. I love this series because if we're going to live our lives as excellent Christ followers, then we should be familiar with how he lived his life, right? Uh, we can't follow what we haven't seen. And the four gospel writers go to great lengths to tell us exactly the person that they saw. They, they go to great, incredible lengths to paint this wonderfully uh, nuanced and subtle account of who Jesus was. You know, if you ask my kids, I'm their dad. If you ask my wife, I'm her husband. If you ask my parents, I'm their son. If you ask my siblings, I'm their brother. And all of these things are true. All of them are true titles, they're accurate, they're even foundational to who I am as a person. Uh, But the union of these four perspectives together gives a much more robust look into not just my life, but how I lived, about the the kind of relationship that I valued in my life, how I've really lived. It's like you take all the individual perspectives and create one nuanced picture of who I am. So each of the four gospel writers had the same story to tell, but very different eyes through which to tell it, because they've all been watching Jesus. They all have different perspectives on Jesus. They tell us about the man who they walked alongside in their travels and journeys, the guy who they got into trouble with in rebellion, the the one that they visited their homes with, the one who they joked around with in friendship, the one that they cried on in mourning who they learn from. Yes, even in moments of like formal teaching, which Jesus did, but Jesus was also very good at like taking a moment that wasn't the time to preach and overlaying some lessons of spirituality and eternal implications on top of that moment. They tell us about this man who they dropped everything in their lives to follow because something about him was so unlike any other man they'd ever seen or known before. But most importantly, they paint a portrait of the man who was God. More, more important than anything, they, they paint the portrait of their friend who was their father, of their leader who was love himself, their companion who was their creator. 
And so when John pulls out his parchment, when John starts to write out the thought, like what's the foremost characteristic, the most important thing that I want them to know about my friend and my God, Jesus? He doesn't start with the Christmas baby. Instead, he starts at the birth of all of creation. Let's read together. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that had been created. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. John reaches all the way back to the beginning of time and space and delivers the narrative all the way back into present time because the most important thing that John wants you to know about his friend Jesus is that he is God himself. I want to weave his words through the opening lines of Genesis and you'll see very quickly the story that John is trying to tell. Pay attention to what's John's words and what are the words of Genesis. In the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, uh, he was with God in the beginning. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. All things were created through him. And apart from him, not one thing was created that was created. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. In him was life. And that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. John wants to show you a very purposeful and intentional parallel here. He's telling you a symbolic reenactment of the creation of the earth, and not just the earth, but everything we know of humanity, with Jesus playing his rightful role, as creator. What was once disorderly and chaotic and formless and empty was now bursting with order and with function and life and fullness. And all of this happened because of God's perfect plan to initiate his union with his people. So God's first act in creation was to bring light into the darkness. And now John is equating that act with the redemptive work of Christ. Jesus was present both in the revelation of his creation, but also in its redemption. As the light overtook the darkness, Jesus' role is to overtake our lives, transforming us into new creations. And from the very beginning, God was working towards a relationship with his people. And isn't this kind of the story of the whole Bible? I mean, honestly, God passionately and purposefully and relentlessly loving people who wouldn't love him back. Serving people who wouldn't serve him. Providing for people who never took the time to appreciate that provision. The Old Testament walks us through this grand narrative of God's people just actively rebelling against him. And now, Jesus arrives on the scene, and his role as the creator gets top billing once more. The creator has come to reunite God with his people. The light has entered into the darkness, and from that light, we now have life. This has been the plan the whole time. And God would have his people, and they would love him, and serve him, and he would bless them, and take care of them. 
Paul takes it an even step further. He, he mentioned this in the beginning of his letter to the Ephesians, but then he also reiterates it in several of his other letters. So Paul, to the Ephesians, says this, Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ, for he chose us in him. When? Before the foundation of the world, to be holy and blameless in love before him. Not just at the beginning of creation, but before the very foundation of the world. Before there was even a Genesis to write about, God knew the redemptive arc of his people's story. God knew that he would create a world and he would create his people and he knew that his creation would become disorderly and his people would fall away from him. Creation has always been linked with this idea of redemption, this transformation of taking something very dark and turning it into something very light. Jesus knew from the foundation of the world how this story would go and he created it anyway because creation is always linked to redemption. And I hope that's an encouragement to you. I, I want to be careful because the way that John introdu- introduces his, his uh, message here is all about Jesus. It's just a, a beautiful portrayal and proclamation of who Jesus is. So I don't want to take something that's about God and make it about us because, of course, we'd be really good at that, right? But I do hope you're encouraged. God knew before he even got around to separating the light from the darkness that we would one day be in this room together. He knew that you would bicker with your spouse this morning before coming in. He knew that your kids would be terrorists when they were getting ready for church. Uh, He knew that you'd put on a brave face to make everyone believe that you have it more together than you do. He knew about the dark secrets that no one else knows about. And even worse, he knew where he would land on your list of priorities. And still, he created you. Why? Why would he go through the hassle of everything if he knew the whole time that I don't love him nearly as much as he loves me? Because the story the whole time has been that God wants to be in union with his people. He created a whole universe to do just that. And then when his people didn't hold up their end of the deal, God himself came as Jesus to usher in now a new creation of light and life. And this is the Jesus who John wants you to know. So, with that in mind, uh, we can get into the actual story this morning, and I promise all of that is relevant. Uh, Today we explore the moment that Jesus performs his first public miracle. This usually told as like a miracle tale, you know, kind of a, like a Canterbury tale kind of thing. Um, but it's so much greater than that. This is the world's introduction to the supernatural power of Jesus. This is a moment of heaven and earth intersecting with one another, and it illustrates exactly the kind of power, the reality of power that Jesus is capable of. So in John chapter 2, he says this, On the third day, A wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, they don't have any wine. Why does something always go wrong at a wedding? Like, it's a thing. It's like a universal thread that ties all marriages together. Something goes wrong at a wedding. Look, there's a picture. This is uh, me, like, as a baby getting married. Uh, See... Do you see these roses on the side of the cake? 
those are only there because the cake smashed into the box on the way there. Like, like that, that was a panic thing. You know, just throw some roses on it, no one will know. You know? Something always goes wrong at a wedding, and this is not an isolated incident. I've been to just an incredible number of weddings. I've been, been in and officiated so many weddings at this point, and cakes, just as a side note, are the most violently volatile baked good known to man. Uh, I don't have time to tell you about the horror stories of wedding cakes. Trust me, go for the cupcakes. It always goes better. Someone's day will always get rained on. Or the best man will inevitably forget the rings. Or your caterer just won't show up. Or COVID happens, for example, and your plans pivot and shift to something like this, to a living room wedding, right? Because your venue backs out and you don't know if it's even safe to bring people together anymore. Something like this, dinosaur costumes. Because it's May of 2020, and the city just put out a temporary mandate for outdoor gatherings that you couldn't bring less than or more than 15 people together. And everyone's required to wear masks, so you just wear inflatable dino suits instead. This is real life. I am the Triceratops. Anyway, the point is, something always goes wrong at a wedding. And apparently, first century people are not immune to this. Galilee is like this region, Cana is a town, and somewhere within the town, like a, like a Park Glen neighborhood, um, there's a wedding that's just falling apart. It's about nine miles north of where Jesus grew up in Nazareth. Uh, last week, uh, Josh told us about some of the accounts of, of Jesus calling some of his first disciples. So here they are at this wedding, along with Jesus' mother, Mary. Joseph isn't here, and it's kind of uh, important to note that he's not here, um, and really that his absence is just noticed in the rest of the New Testament. Joseph doesn't show up again in the story. Uh, really what that probably means is that he's died by this point, which would make Jesus, who is the eldest of Mary's children, uh, he'd be kind of the, the man of the house culturally. And likely the plus one, uh, plus the disciples, because he brings an entourage, um, for Mary at, at this event. We don't really know who's getting married at the wedding, but it's not really important to the point of the story, except that it's probably a relative, because Mary seems to be playing some kind of critical role in the operations of the wedding. Mary is very concerned with what's happening. She claims at least some amount of responsibility for the conflict that's about to just kind of plague this party. First century weddings aren't just like a ceremony of the reception and then you're out of here. Uh, instead, they're a whole week of celebrations, of feasts and parties. And it's not like today where like, you start with a massive list of the thousands of people you've ever met and then you know, pare it down to a manageable guest list, those people that are closest to you. That's not really how this was back then. Instead, these are like social events for weeks that like, the whole city would show up to. Uh, so much so that like, the rabbis at the time would shut down the religious festivals. They'd say, okay, this week we had a wedding, nothing's happening. You guys go party. Have a nice time. Uh, that, it would be like this exception to celebrate and shut everything else down. So it's a, a town-wide event to come to a wedding. This kind of sets the social scene. A wedding isn't just about you know, the, the people you know and love. A first century wedding is also host to the enemies of the family. So like the ex-boyfriends are there. The people who are more affluent than you are there. The snobs and the gossips, they'd all be invited to these massive events. It's like, like Bridgerton, but with more togas, you know? <laughs> Weddings aren't about the couple here. 
Weddings are about two families joined together, which means that all the drama is multiplied and amplified, and everything has to go flawlessly. So we met this cast of characters. We're about to see the moment of conflict. The wine has run out. This is so much more than a buzzkill at a party. This is a potential social nightmare. And it's a definite downgrade of social status. This family is about to forever be remembered as the ones who ran out of wine. The people who were too poor to host the party. They'd be the ones who didn't care for their guests. So again, we don't really know how Mary's connected to the story. We don't really know exactly why she went to Jesus to solve the problem. Because up until now... She had no reason to think that Jesus would intervene with any kind of miraculous acts. So we don't really know a lot of the motivations here or a lot of the connections, but John continues the story. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, they don't have any wine. Don't read this tone too harshly. In my recollection of the story, I, I, I imagine Mary's being really like brash and commanding and overbearing, but it's not really the intended tone here. It's not supposed to be like she goes up to him like, what are you going to do about it, Jesus? Um, it's not really the thing. She's more just saying, this is the circumstance. She's just telling him. This is what's happening. She's not necessarily demanding a solution, which, as a side note, men, the women in your life frequently tell you circumstances without demanding a solution, and sometimes the problem isn't yours to fix. But that's a whole different sermon altogether. Uh, I, I imagine this moment is like a little side note. You know, when something awkward and uncomfortable happens and you make eye contact with someone, Erica will, like, push on my leg right here. I have, like, a permanent bruise right here. Um, from, you know, where you, like, make eye contact, they just know. Like, they, you guys just know. You're connecting. You know exactly what the other person's thinking. Or you notice some drama and you, like, pull out your phone to text the person who's sitting at the same table as you just to make sure that they know about the drama, too. And like, I know, I know. You know, and everyone knows the drama together. Or like in a social setting, you know, you walk up to the corner with a friend and you whisper, like, hey, they ran out of wine. That's kind of what's happening here. So we know the characters and the conflict. And if you misread Mary's tone, you're definitely going to misread the intentions of Jesus' response. So that's really important. So don't misread Mary's tone. Mary is just kind of presenting an issue out there. She's saying, like, hey, they ran out. So be very cautious not to misread how Jesus is going to respond to her. He says this, What has this concern of yours to do with me, woman? Jesus asked. My hour has not yet come. And if you're cringing right now, uh, you're not alone. But no, don't, don't read disrespect onto this moment. This story is not about Mary overstepping her bounds. And it's definitely not a story about Jesus disrespecting his mother. This is a moment where Jesus calls Mary, ma'am, and not mom. That's really the way to read this. He's creating a a purposeful and a respectful distance in his relationship to her. It's actually like, it's an ancient idiom. It's used all throughout the Bible. Uh, It kind of means more along the lines of like, what does this have to do with me? Or even, what's your expectation of me right now? This is a pivotal shift in both Jesus' life but also a transforming moment in his relationship with his mother, Mary. He's presented a very humanly problem, and his response to Mary tells her that something with far greater implications than a party running out of wine is on the forefront of his mind instead. 
I have more important things on the horizon than this matter. You're so concerned about status and embarrassment and shortage of supplies, which is reasonable, but this has very little to do with me. I'm not going to be able to act as Jesus, your son, forever. I'm now operating as Jesus, the son of God, and I have something far greater happening. My hour has not yet come. The hour wouldn't be fulfilled until he had died on a cross. Jesus says this over and over again in the New Testament accounts. The hour has not yet come. The hour has not yet come. Hold on, wait, the time is coming, but the hour isn't here yet. And he says this over and over until the triumphal entry. Jesus rides into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. The people lay out their palm branches and say to him and praise him. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. We remember this now as Palm Sunday, the marker that it's the week of Jesus' crucifixion. A crowd gathers because they want to hear what the King has to say. And Jesus replies to them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So back at the wedding, Mary's looking only at the moment at hand. But it's not to blame her There's a very real problem right in front of her. But Jesus is looking ahead at an entirely different mission to accomplish. A completely different miracle was in the works. This is the ultimate culmination of the reunification of God with his people. This is creation 2.0. And salvation was going to realign all that was intended from before time and creation. But the hour for that had not yet come. I'm sure Mary and Jesus' disciples and whoever else were gathered around at this point had some questions. The hour had not yet come? What hour? What is still to come? What about right now? What about the problem right in front of us? The hour had not yet come. God is just on a completely different timetable. He's never late. He's not hurried. He's not in a rush to push something ahead of its schedule, yet there was a matter at hand that needed to be dealt with. And yes, Jesus will deal with it as we keep reading, but he's starting to lay the groundwork of expectation that what you see isn't all there is. What you're expecting isn't all that's going to be. What you hope for a solution for right now might just be a small piece of the puzzle. We want to get so ahead of God's schedule We want the answers right now. We want to know the whens and the wheres and the whys and the hows. I think there's another one of these. The what? If no. Okay, no. No. We we want to know all these things. We want to know all of the answers. And God often answers us with a not yet. Just wait. The time isn't here yet. You're being short-sighted. Something far greater is coming than this. And then we complain, and we whine, and we stomp our feet. Because if God really loved us, we would have our answers now, and our solutions now, and our conclusions now. But that's not the story of God's faithfulness. That's the story of our faithlessness. Just a thought. Maybe you're stuck in a cycle because you're waiting for God to do something outside of his scope of intervention. The time just might not be here yet. So what do I do in the meantime? And really, that depends. It depends on your problem. It depends on your faithfulness. 
It depends on your perspective, on your context, on your availability, on, your, on the difficulty, on your skill level, on your community, on your teachability. I can think of a lot of factors that really complicate an answer to that question. But what do we do while we wait for God's timing? The answer is so easy. Problem solve. And use the common sense that God gifted you with and keep pushing forward glorifying God regardless of your circumstances and making disciples all along the way. You don't have to love everything about your situation to be on mission for Jesus. Everything doesn't have to be aligned in your life in order for you to serve God. You don't have to wait for some free space in your schedule to punch in some time with Scripture. The time is now. There are plenty of things we can be doing that we know we should be doing while we wait for the bigger thing. Don't get so zoomed into your problems and to your circumstances that you fail to see the bigger stage that God is setting for you. Problems are so much easier to handle when you handle them with perspective. And if you are doing everything, and you're doing everything, and you're still not seeing God's intervention in difficulty, then keep doing what you're doing. And keep faithfully serving him. Because that's when your faithfulness is truly tested and transformed then into perseverance. We need to be better enactors of thy will be done kind of people. I'm especially good at pursuing my will and expecting that God's going to kind of align himself with that. And honestly, that's just not really a good enough excuse anymore. Become thy will, not my will people. When our will is aligned with the purposes of God, then our wants and our needs and our desires will align with God's own will and mission for us. We'll find ourselves much more at peace with the waiting. Mary's greatest concern right now is that the wedding can come to conclusion without incident. That's what she wants. How can we get through this wedding and not cause any embarrassment? Jesus knew that his conclusion would only come with great incident on the cross. Something in this mother-son exchange is communicated non-verbally to each other because Mary doesn't push back at all. She doesn't ask more questions. She probably doesn't even really understand completely. But she knows that this is a moment where Jesus has asserted himself in a role that's so much greater than who he is as her son. And she trusts him. Listen to Mary's words. She's not at all offended by Jesus' response. She doesn't perceive him as being hostile or aggressive, and she doesn't respond in that kind of manner either. No, she trusts that whatever this side of her son is that she's seeing right now, he would have whatever solution or no solution at all that he knew would be necessary. John 2 says this. Do whatever he tells you, his mother told the servants. Now six stone water jars had been set there for Jewish purification. Each contained 20 or 30 gallons. Fill the jars with water, Jesus told them. So they filled them to the brim. Then he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the head waiter. And they did. Nearby the scene, there's like these six stone jars. They're stone because clay jars would become easily broken and unclean. 
And these are the jars that the Jews used for their like ceremonial purification. Um, basically what happened at, at a large feast like this, at a wedding celebration, the tradition would be uh, that the servants would take pure and clean water from these very specific stone vessels. They would take water from it and they would go to each of the guests and individually wash their hands before the meal. Everything about these pots points to the old covenant of Judaism. So Jesus is making a statement here. Take the vessels that were being used to make the dirty people clean and change their very function and their very nature into something very valuable with the presence and the power of Jesus. These jars would account for about 150, between 120 and 180 gallons of water. It's the equivalent of 750 bottles of wine. That's a lot of wine. This isn't a small work. Uh, imagine the work that would have been required to fill the jars, to transform, uh, not transform, to get just to like carry the, the jars over, to fill them up to the brim, to transport that, to move that much water. It's over 1,200 pounds of water being shuffled around. Mary tells the servants, do whatever he tells you. I'm sure they're all just kind of grumbling at the gravity of this request. Do whatever he tells you. We don't even know him. So Jesus tells them, see these pots? Fill them with water. I can imagine the servant's line of questioning in their head. But the meal has already begun. The guests have already washed their hands. These are purification jars. We're, we're already past that. But they did just as Mary told them. And they obeyed him. They take fresh water, they fill it all the way up to the brim, just as Jesus instructed. He tells them, now, take a scoop from the jars and bring it to the head waiter. Think like the maitre d' or the master of ceremonies. This is usually an honored guest at the party, the lead chef, who would not only have high expectations, but he'd also be responsible for making sure that those expectations are met. This is an important person. So can you just imagine the terror I just want you to put yourself in the, in the mind of the servants for a second. Being a servant at this wedding, running out of the party's celebration drink, having a guest tell you to fill the washing jars with drinking water and then presenting a scoop of that water, as far as you know it, to your boss, who's likely the most stressed out that he's ever been. I love that in this story, we don't actually see Jesus doing anything to the water. It's just water. But now, it's wine. But there's no moment of wizardry with like a wand tap and a you know, spell um, to make it happen. It just happens. I also love that when it happens, the people are just expected to trust that it happened. I wish we were better at this. I wish I was better at this. I wonder how many miracles we've missed collectively because we've been waiting for the evidence of them. Like, how many times were we protected from harm? How many times was a prayer answered with a no? How many times were things accounted for and provided and thought through and cared for and we just didn't even notice? Your life is a culmination of millions of miracles. Maybe instead of griping about the lack of miracles that we're seeing, we should develop the rhythm of celebrating the abundance of miracles that we're not seeing. For every item in your life that didn't work out, I guarantee you there were 
exponentially more that did work out. They were just unseen miracles. They were water turned into wine from the vantage of this stone jar that you couldn't see into. You would never know unless it was poured out and examined. And just like the servants, we are called to trust that God is doing his part in our lives. And if you really, truly believe that God is working and meeting the needs and caring for his people, then the abundance of everyday miracles in your life would be far more obvious. So he says to them, Now, draw some out and take it to the head waiter. And they did. As far as they knew, they were about to serve water as the grand finale at this wedding party. Jesus didn't even tell them that it was wine. But they did as they were instructed. Jesus' command does two things here. First, it makes a statement of abundance. Okay? There, there were six jars. It was clearly more than enough wine than they needed. Uh, what was once lacking, we now have in great abundance. And all throughout Scripture and all through prophecy, uh, an abundance of good wine is a sign of the Messiah bringing forth his new kingdom. It's a, a common element that's used as a picture and portrayal of Jesus bringing in his kingdom and being in abundance. Two, though, he was commanding the mark of approval to come. The miracle needed verification so that in the end the people would believe. He needed someone to put a stamp of approval on it. Otherwise, it's just wine in a jar that no one knows about. He needed a stamp of approval. Take the wine to the master of the ceremonies, pass his quality control check, and then the party can continue. So, when the head waiter tasted the water, now it's become wine. He didn't know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. He called the groom and told him, everyone sets out the fine wine first, then after people are drunk the inferior. But you kept the fine wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs, in Cana of Galilee. He revealed his glory, and the disciples believed in him. The story comes to its grand conclusion here. The servants bring the water slash wine to their boss. They don't tell him the whole story, probably because they're terrified of what was going to happen when he took the drink. The head waiter takes a sip of the wine He's flabbergasted. He's so, so impressed by how, how incredible and superior this wine is. He calls the groom over, and together they marvel over the best wine being saved for the end of the party. And one thing that John does here, which I love, is he gives two of the main people in this story background roles. You'd expect the groom at his own wedding to at least be a leading character in the story, you expect him to have a decently sized part, but that's not really his story, is it? It's Jesus' story. And the head waiter? This isn't really his story. It's Jesus' story. You don't really get to these guys until the very end of the story, and they're very much footnotes to the whole thing. The whole nature of this story is to point to Jesus, to illustrate that the transformation of creation has been reignited now with Jesus. Yes, there's a master of ceremony here who's honored and who's in charge. Yes, there's a groom who's being celebrated. But in the end, Jesus has the honor. And Jesus deserves the celebration. You've kept the fine wine until now. It's such a beautiful summation of what Jesus' life has looked like until this point. 
His arrival as supernatural has now come, and this was his first showing. He's lived his life fairly under the radar, and now, now he's going to unleash something special. He revealed his glory, and the disciples believed him. What comes to your mind when you think of the word glory? Because in my mind, I think of angels in the clouds and bright beams of light streaming down in their midst. This is what Google thinks it is. That's about what I think it is. When you think of glory, you think of, you know, crowns of golden blaze, you know, being like thrown in the sky. I think very ethereal and majestic. That's not really how God chose to reveal his glory to his people. That's not really how this story went. We don't see any of this happening in the story. His glory was revealed in a pot of water. Servants were the first to witness it. There was no grand pageantry. There was no fanfare. The majority of the partygoers would never even know that Jesus performed the miracle. It was such a, a low-key experience, and yet it was the glory of God revealed. Enough that the disciples transitioned from faith and curiosity to belief and certainty. Do you consider God's glory in these smaller moments? Or are you waiting for this grand, heavenly display of gestures and angels singing and beams of light falling onto the earth and miracles of great magnitude? Because when God chose to display his glory to the people for the first time, he did it in a much quieter way. And I think he's still displaying his glory to us far more quietly than we expect him to. So of all the miracles that Jesus could have made a splash with, of all of the ones that he could have said as, okay, this is my first introduction as supernatural to my people, why this one? Why wine? What, what bigger picture was he trying to illustrate with us? The wedding celebration at this point, up until now, had been a point of failure. But Jesus' first act is an act of transformation. He took what was broken and he fixed it beyond earthly understanding and comprehension. In an even greater sense, Jesus is now premiering his reunification with his people. It all goes back to this Genesis account. Jesus would go on to do many more miracles and display many more signs to the people, but he chose this one as the opener to his earthly ministry. This one, this marriage moment that beautifully describes and displays the union and the celebration of two becoming one. The whole picture is such a glorious metaphor of heaven and earth joining into one, of God reuniting with his creation after their separation. Because before the foundation of the world had been laid, God wanted to be in union with his people. He sets out this grand, this masterful plan to enact a creation so marvelous that it would be worthy to be called his he crafted his people with care and with purpose, and everything was aligned for a perfect union and a perfect creation. And then what happens? Humanity rebels and continued to rebel. But God still wanted to keep his promise of a union. 
even in the height of the rebellion, at its worst, God spoke through the prophet Isaiah to reveal the generosity of the kingdom. He gives Israel these words, Lord, you are my God, and I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you have accomplished wonders, plans formed long ago with perfect faithfulness. On this mountain, the Lord of armies will prepare for all the peoples a feast of choice meat, a feast with aged wine, prime cuts of choice meat, fine vintage wine. When he has swallowed up death once and for all, the Lord will wipe away the tears from every face and remove his people's disgrace from the whole earth, for the Lord has spoken. On that day, it will be said, Look, this is our God. We have waited for him, and he has saved us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let's rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Isaiah is saying this, Right now, our rebellion has caused distance to God. Just wait. God's been making plans for all of time to reunite with his people. The time will come for a new feast and a new party to be had and prepared. The meal will be set out. The finest wine will be poured and he will triumph over everything. Look, this is our God. We've waited, he saved us, and we will one day rejoice in that glorious reality. The Old Testament prophet Jeremiah foretells a very similar future. He was sent by God to tell the story of God's love in a land and to a people who were unfaithful, who were ignorant, and who were rebellious. And the story that he told was that even when God's people had given up on their marriage to God, God wouldn't give up on his marriage to his people. He says, one day this union will be renewed and restored in a way that they could only imagine. Jeremiah says that the people will be radiant with joy because of the Lord's goodness. He says there will be an abundance of, and again, notice the picture, of new wine. In fact, Jeremiah gets to the very heart of why Jesus chose this to be the moment of his first public miracle. The new wine represented so much more than a happy wedding. The new wine would be the marker of the new covenant that God was going to enact for his people. Look, the days are coming! This is the Lord's declaration. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, this will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors on the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, even though I am their master, the Lord's declaration. Instead, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, the Lord's declaration. I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will one teach his neighbor or his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least to the greatest of them. This is the Lord's declaration. For I will forgive their iniquity and never again remember their sin. The old covenant's cleansing didn't have the power to wash away sins, but the blood of Jesus Christ can. This is the promise Jesus is making through the symbolism of the wine. The new wine is better than the old. The new covenant is greater than what had come before. The old covenant was the collective nation, God promising to Israel to be their God and for them to be his people. The new covenant now has been extended as an individual union between God and all of humanity. Jesus enters into this 
moment of distress at a wedding, and he turns it into the first sign that prophecy is being fulfilled. The new covenant was being brought about, and the marriage union between God and his people was now being enacted once again. Listen, Jesus may not have been the groom at this wedding, but he was certainly pointing to an entirely different celebration where he would be forever uniting with the church as his bride. The Old Testament prophets, they foretold that this day was coming. It would be marked with celebration, with reunion, with victory, and the launch of a new covenantal promise that God was going to make with his people. And this is exactly what Jesus is beginning to usher in for his very first miracle. None of this is accidental. It was planned long before the creation of the universe that God would one day unite with his creation, just as he intended. Jesus' miracle is the picture of just that. Later in John's gospel account, he tells us exactly how he wants his friend Jesus to be portrayed. This is in John chapter 20. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of the disciples that were not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Jesus is the Son of God, and the Messiah that they had been awaiting. He performed sign after sign, proving over and over again that he was exactly who he said he was. The purpose statement here is clear belief. He is exactly who we've proclaimed. He is the word from the beginning. He is the light to give us new life. Believe. He meets your needs. He performs a million miracles in your life every day. He has made a promise to sustain you. Believe. He is your creator. He is your transformer. He is glorious and powerful. He is God himself. Believe. Would you quietly bow your heads together? Let's just spend a few minutes reflecting and asking God to challenge our hearts together. Jesus said time and time again, over and over, the hour hasn't come yet. The hour has not come yet until finally his time had come. He was ready to fulfill this ultimate purpose of putting forward salvation to our access. The time has now come. And when the time had come, he willingly chose to transition his life to death and sacrifice for us. All of creation echoes this story of God's union with his people. The creator came to dwell with his creation and gave himself to restore that union. And to the believer, this is a solemn and celebratory truth. That Jesus loved us to the point of death and that he was obedient to his own timing for our sake. That should result in praise and proclamation and celebration and solemn remembrance for his goodness. Maybe you haven't dwelled on this lately. Jesus being obedient to his death wasn't this light thing to haphazardly just brush off. It's like a, a background tenant to the faith. It's the basis for your salvation and you should spend every day in remembrance of that truth. But to the unconvinced, to those who don't believe, or to those who feel lost without the hope that comes from knowing a Savior, let me tell you this. 
Before the foundation of the world was set, Jesus knew who you were. He wanted to have union with you. He created you, knowing that you would have the choice to accept or reject him, and he sacrificed himself for your sake, even with that risk. And you can choose today to follow him. Even a step back from that, you can choose today to ask questions. There's people here at the front, there's people in the back of the room who would love to guide you and respond to your questions and point you in the direction of answers. And I promise you won't regret the conversation. And if that's you, I'd love to offer you the opportunity now, at any point, people are ready for you. Believers, how are we doing on seeking God's will over our own? Can I be honest? I'm too much of a control freak to admit that it's thy will over my will. It's something I'm working on and actively repenting of. Maybe you need to, too. We can't impatiently wait for God's timing if we're too busy being the puppeteer of our lives. Maybe make this your prayer, our Father, who art in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thy will, not mine. And pray those words every morning and every night and every moment you catch yourself asserting your will over the will of your Father. This is a story of transformation. What was once a moment of desperation turned into a moment of celebration. And when it comes to transforming power, no one beats Jesus. So to make this assessment of yourself, what's broken? Your expectations, your desires, your past, your present, your ego, your addictions, your control, your timing. Jesus is the expert at taking these broken parts of us and reclaiming them and renaming them and redeeming them for his glory. Allow him Stop putting up this barrier between what you crave and what he wants to redeem in your life. Let him do his work. And then notice when the work is happening. Take note of the millions of miracles that God is doing quietly in your life. Don't wait until the big, more noticeable, grandeur displays of miracles happen before you recognize the everyday, powerful acts in your life. He's the hero of this story. He's the hero of our stories. But we should serve him and celebrate him as such every day. God, you are creator and you are sustainer. You transform us. You make us and mold us into new creations. And we are forever and always grateful for the lives that you've given us and called us to lead. God, forgive our lack of notice. Forgive us for not taking note of the glorious acts that you do in our lives every day. Forgive us for trusting in ourselves and not recognizing your will and your control. Help us to be fully reliant on the power that you display to us. We want to be good citizens of your kingdom. We want to be fully in recognition of you as our king. Help us, guide us, Keep transforming us into people who will serve you well. And this is all in the glorious name of Jesus that I pray. Amen. Would you stand with me?
near the end of your Bible is a book called Jude. The book of Jude is different in that it's not written to a particular church. It's instead to believers in general. He said, said these are to the people who are called, loved by God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Jude closes his book with the same words I'd like to leave you all with this morning. But you, dear friends, as you build yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting expectantly for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. Now, to him who is able to protect you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory without blemish and with great joy, To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, power, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. God bless you and keep you and provide for you and care for you. Notice the glorious glorious miracle of Jesus in your life every day, and we will see you again next Sunday.